The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. This is a new show and there are new rules. One, is this information we need in the voting booth? Two, is this the best possible form of the argument? And three, is the story in historical context? You can use a mnemonic device. Um, I, 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 the three I's. That's not really helpful. I was gonna say. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 7, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. Oh, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today. We're 519-661-3600 is always the number you can reach us. And, of course, you can always email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today on the show, we've got a number of issues to discuss, ranging from news coverage to free speech to the Watcott decision. And we're going to expose the CBC. And joining us to do that on the live line from Ottawa this morning is none other then Brian Lilly, author, broadcaster, Sun TV. Brian, are you there? Yes, good to speak to you, gents. Good morning. Hello again, Brian. Hey, Brian. Uh, Robert tells me uh, that you're the guy who took my parking spot at the Lamplighter Inn last week when you were in London during your appearance. Is that true? <laughs> I may have. Uh, yeah. Great, uh, great appearance out in London and uh, lots of events going on at the Lamplighter. So parking was at a premium. Oh, day. man, I'll tell you. that way. Did you have a good time? Because you were here in London on, on your on your book signing tour with the International yeah, Free Press Society. Well, I had been hoping to get into London a bit earlier and uh, see the town. I haven't spent much time in London in several years. Both my brother and sister went to school in London, and so I used to go down and visit them all the time and, uh, of course, you know, frequent the places that students frequent. Uh, but also just uh, I always enjoyed being in downtown London and uh, unfortunately, due to the, the big snow dump that we got Wednesday and Thursday, I got there later than I wanted to. So I, you know, had a bit of time. I uh, was able to, to drop by and uh, and do a podcast with uh, with Robert, but uh, not the Explore London trip that I had hoped for. Well, I had a chance to preview that podcast, and it was uh, it was excellent, by the way. And uh, sorry, I didn't get a chance to meet you myself, Robert. Uh, did you want to lead off with the CBC issue now? Well, thanks uh, again, Brian, for taking part in that interview that I did with you, uh, which is probably up on our website right now. Um, I was uploading it all last night, and I think it should be available now for people who want to see that. It's um, on Just Right Media's YouTube site. So if you go, go to justrightmedia.org, click on the Watch Us on YouTube button you'll find it there if not now then very soon uh, so thanks again for that Brian but why don't you tell us a Very bit welcome. about your CBC exposed book what have you exposed about the CBC that we should take note of well lots of people have uh, fond memories of CBC over the years uh, uh, and depending on your age it, uh, it might involve Don Messer's Jubilee it might involve the Friendly Giant it might involve uh, Coronation Street and Hockey Night in Canada two of the most popular shows now but the fact is that uh, there is a dark side to the CBC and given that it is uh, the state broadcaster we pay for it all and 
Canadians don't get to hear those stories because the other media go very light on CBC in a way that they don't on any other government department. Part of the reason for that is that so many of them are on CBC's payroll, even if they work for the Globe and Mail or Canadian Press or the Toronto Star. They make money on the side with CBC. They appear on their panels, um, which you appear on a show like Power and Politics with Evan Solomon every week. That's to at least $250 a week. Some people make more. Some people at CBC have made up to $750 per appearance, and they'll be talked to two and three times during the week. Now, you point this out, and you're told, oh, well, that's just, that's not a lot of money. I'm sorry, but even if it's just $250 a week, that's $1,000 a month. That's more than a lot of seniors get. Uh, from their uh, CPP or old age pension, or so not from the CPP, but from their, their old, old age uh, security. It sounds as if they're paying uh, so off their critics. There's a lot of critics. people that would disagree with that. Yeah, it sounds almost as if they're paying off their critics. It's, just, it's becoming a cash cow for anyone who might have an opinion opposed to that of the CBC. Yeah, well, and uh, my colleague Ezra Levant did a stunt of going to the CBC and uh, with one of our Sun News cameras and talking about uh, he's got to save the CBC, and he had a um, uh, a life preserver from a boat with him. And, uh, you know, he's just having a bit of fun uh, while trying to make a serious point about a story. Well, the internal emails from CBC that we obtained through access to information showed that CBC executives said we should hire him as a way to shut him up. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I saw yeah, the that, piece. that is the way they operate. So you don't hear about the stories. Or you don't hear about them the way you would with others um, in the same um, in the same frame of reference. And then there's the issue of their bias. I mean, they definitely have a, an anti-conservative bias. They um, uh, they will uh, tolerate a, a certain amount of libertarian thought as long as they only talk to them about social issues and not about any of the uh, stopping the growth of big government. Uh, they've got a very definite pecking order of who they'll talk to, and the consensus at CBC is very big government. It is it just oozes from that. You know, I, I've been on the Hill full time since 2005. I've worked in media covering politics for a long time now. Uh, before that as well, I can't believe how many people in this business, uh, CBC in particular, but in the business overall cover government failure after government failure, because that's what you're reporting on so often, and yet their default position is any problem needs more government. That's true. Interesting, interesting observation. Now, given that, do you see any kind of role at all for something that we would call state broadcasting, state television. It didn't start off that big, obviously. I know the National Film Board was another organization sort of created also for, you know, propaganda purposes and government purposes. Is there any role or any function for something like that, do you think? No. No, no, no. Well, that's One a straight answer. answer. No. <laughs> uh, we, we shouldn't own a state broadcaster. People can make the argument and we can have a serious and uh, sober debate about whether uh, there is a role for uh, the government to fund Canadian productions because uh, as much as I don't want CBC around, you know what, I understand the argument that uh, 
that we want to make sure that there is Canadian um, uh, Canadian content out there. CBC mostly buys its Canadian content now from independent producers. They're not off making it on their own. Other than their news coverage, uh, they are buying it. So is everybody else. So why do we have to own, why do we have to subsidize the production and own the broadcaster at the same time, which we subsidize to the tune of $1.1 billion? Uh, we don't need uh, this signal going out to all corners of the country. More than 98% of Canadians are on satellite or uh, cable of some kind. So what you're saying, Brian, is that any function that the CBC may have had in the past has been adequately taken over by the private industry. So therefore, there is absolutely no need for this state broadcaster. Yeah, and, and I would have been one of the people arguing in uh, the 1930s that there was no need for it. People think that CBC started broadcasting in this country, and uh, when you talk about television, that's true, because they got into the radio business long after private radio, mm -hmm. but then the government made them the regulator of the industry as well. Canadians got TV years and years after, or at least the homegrown television, years and years after the Americans and the Brits had it, because CBC was the regular, regulator and wouldn't let anybody else set anything up. So they actually uh, held back the development of the TV industry. As far as um, the radio side, CBC just celebrated its 75th anniversary. Well, you know what? Uh, I worked at a radio station that started in 1919. <laughs> it was the oldest private radio station in North America. And they started... 17 years before CBC got started. Now, since I met you on Thursday, the CBC has gotten in hot water again uh, with a portrayal of Christians eating Timbits instead of the uh, the host. A most offensive thing to Catholics, and um, I have a Catholic background, uh, so does Bob, so does a lot of our friends, and to, to, to portray... Uh, um, I think it was this hour has 22 minutes, Catholics drinking Tim's instead of the uh, wine from the chalice and, and eating Tim bits instead of giving the, the host, which is, to a Catholic, means the actual body of Christ. It's extremely offensive to Catholics. What do you have to say about such a, a portrayal? Well, you know, swap it out for other religions. Would they have a uh, skit on 22 minutes that showed... Um, people going to the Hajj in Mecca. And then as they, they're walking around in the circle, halfway around they stop for a back bacon sandwich because they're Canadian Muslims. Yeah, They wouldn't do that. Would they have Jews praying at the Western Wall and then somebody pulls out uh, a pork chop? They wouldn't do that. In, in fact, Sean Majumder, who was playing uh, the badly dressed bishop, in that, because it wasn't just a priest. I, the way they had him dressed up, he was mm -hmm. a bishop. I don't know if Majumder knew that. Um, he he actually went on uh, CBC News last year in November to criticize a skit that was done by members of the Canadian forces who were over in Afghanistan, or had just come back, who um, were making fun of Osama bin Laden's brother. And it was a skit where they had this guy dressed up as if he was uh, uh, from the Middle East and saying, oh, yeah, I'm Bin Laden's brother, and you infidels don't even know uh, that I'm here, and I'm running a taxi business in Vancouver, and it's great. And, you know, was it great comedy? No, but 
22 minutes, uh, you know, they could have done something like that. They wouldn't. And Majumder criticized members of the Canadian forces for doing that as insensitive and bigoted. Um, you know what? These are guys who were just over fighting al-Qaeda. If you can't make fun of the guys you're fighting, what have we come to? But he can go and make fun of 13 million Canadian Catholics. They have a pecking order, and it's very obvious. So if you are Christian of any kind, if you're Catholic or evangelical in particular, you're fair game. If you uh, support the state of Israel, you're fair game. If you are a gun owner, you're fair game. If you're conservative, libertarian, small government in any way, you're a crackpot. That is the CBC way. Now, uh, we're going to get into free speech later on, and I would never say to anybody that they shouldn't be able to to do what the CBC has done, except for one thing. It's funded by Canadian taxpayer dollars to the tune of over a billion dollars a year. And I think that's your beef about it as well. Would you have any objection to private uh, broadcasters doing what the CBC does if it wasn't for the fact that they're funded by taxpayers' dollars? And, and you know what? I don't. My problem with CBC being funded by taxpayers' dollars is a fundamental one. It has nothing to do with what 22 Minutes did. My criticism of the whole 22 Minutes thing has been that they wouldn't do this to other people. They're hypocrites. Mm-hmm. I haven't asked for them to be censored. It, it's funny uh, to tie in the CBC and the free speech issue. Some people think that um, if you criticize what somebody else says, you're suddenly against free speech. Well, I didn't call for a different sanction on the guy. I said, that was a dumb skit, it was insulting, and you're a hypocritical bigot because you'll only do it for one side. That's a lot different. So um, I I would still criticize it if it was on CTV, but that's part of the, the free marketplace of ideas. Exactly. And I'd like to get into it a little bit more about... Uh Uh, free speech with you and the Watcott decision in the next quarter hour. Uh, We're going to take a little break now, and when we do come back, uh, Brian, uh, we'll we'll get into the Watcott decision and your opinion about free speech in this country. And and by the way, this break is is from uh, a new television show called The Newsroom out of the U.S. um, home box office 2012, not to be confused with CBC's newsroom that was broadcast in the 1990s. And I kind of thought this, this it's a little less than two minutes it runs here. It, it kind of, I think the series is set up on a bunch of sort of right-wing newscasters coming in and taking over a left-wing kind of a newspaper, or should, should we say maybe Sun News taking over CBC? I don't know, but that's what, that's what got me reminded when I heard this. We'll be back in less than two minutes with Brian Lilly. We've got the governor for nine minutes. Just us. She's only talking to Will. How'd you swing that? By telling her about Newsnight 2.0. You showed her the easel? I convinced her she's not going to have to outshout a crazy person. That studio is a courtroom. And we only call expert witnesses. Will is the attorney for both sides. He examines the witness and reveals facts. You'll be amazed at the guess, Will Burke, using that unbelievably obvious template. You don't have to raise your hand. I saw one of those crazy militia guys on Jon Stewart last night. We could also have him on. Did you hear me when I was speaking just then, or were you distracted by a bumblebee? What does the I stand for? Is this the best possible Is this the best possible? 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 Is this the
and I, is this the best possible form of the argument? Not the most colourful version, not the most outrageous version, but the best possible version. How do you define best? I define it by the source. I define it by the number of relevant facts it contains, and I define it by an X factor that I trust Will and myself to determine using our combined five decades in the field. What's the best possible version of the birther argument? There isn't one. And that's the fourth, ah, this one's an A. Are there really two sides to this story? So it's I, 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 A. What does that mean? Are there really... The media is biased towards success and the media is biased towards fairness. How can you be biased toward fairness? There aren't two sides to every story. Some stories have five sides, some only have one. You don't have to raise your hand. I still don't. Bias toward fairness means that if the entire Congressional Republican Caucus were to walk into the House and propose a resolution stating that the Earth was flat, the Times would lead with Democrats and Republicans can't agree on shape of Earth. <laughs> that's that's pretty funny. We're on the line with Brian Lilly live from uh, from his office in Ottawa. Brian, um, do you believe there are more than two sides to some stories? Well, I know there's a, there's an old line that uh, my mother-in-law uses. She says there's uh, three sides to every story: his side, her side, and the truth. Uh, so yes. <laughs> I, I, I haven't thought of that. There's definitely different ways of looking at it, and your worldview shapes how you see uh, what's happening. And, uh, you know, a big chunk of what I talk about on my show on Byline is has to do with worldview, because the, um, the fact is, uh, whether it's judges or politicians, that shapes everything that you do. Mm-hmm. Now, Brian, when I was with you on Thursday, you mentioned to me that the default position for journalists in journalism school is the left. And you actually yeah. told me that you started off on the left. Is it still a very uh, prevalent position for journalists today uh, for of any stripe to be on the left? Uh, it, it, it remains the default position, and it will for some time. Um, it is just... Uh, you know, it's why they get into the school. When I was driving back from London, I was listening to some of the uh, the talk radio out of the States. There's this long stretch between uh, uh, Toronto and when you get into the Ottawa radius that uh, you simply cannot get, uh, you know, a good Canadian talk radio station. So I'm picking up uh, Rush Limbaugh mm -hmm. out of the States. And uh, Rush is a master broadcaster, but he's talking about Bob Woodward being thrown under the bus by journalists in Washington uh, who are likely, as he put it, got into the business because of Bob Woodward. And, you know, he took down a president. I want to be like Bob Woodward, but now Woodward has taken on Obama, so he has to be shot down. He needs to be told, no, no, you're an old kook, and you don't know what you're talking about, because he said, look, the Obama administration is out threatening people. Well, since then, several others, including people on the left, people like Ron Fournier at National Journal, who's uh, a, a good writer. I've enjoyed uh, many of his pieces, but he's definitely uh, on the progressive side. They've come out and said the same thing. It, but most of the journalists in Washington are attacking Woodward. It's the same here in, in Ottawa. Uh, there's a piece out this morning from a reporter named Jennifer Ditchburn. She's with the Canadian Press, and she's one of these people that appears on CBC all the time for the, the 250 bucks a pop. Sometimes gets flown down to uh, to, to Toronto and put up in a nice hotel overnight so she can talk directly with Peter Mansbridge. Well, she and others wrote all about how Parliament did not have the right to see documents that CBC was holding. They argued that 
Parliament does not have the final say, and it would uh, go against tradition. It would do all kinds of things. It would be horrible if a parliamentary committee demanded to see documents that CBC was withholding. Mm -hmm. Today she has a story out saying the exact opposite, because it's the Conservatives uh, on the Finance Committee trying to stop the release of documents related to the budget. The hypocrisy. So there's this double standard, there's a hypocrisy, and, and one of the easiest ways to show it is how journalists treat pet causes like CBC. Right. You know, there's got to be complete openness when it comes to the military. We can find out exactly what's happening through freedom of information and if uh, during the, the Libyan war, while it's going on. Now, whether you agree with the fact that we we're in Libya or not, I think that there should be some secrets to keep our troops safe when it is in mid-operation. Uh, no, no, they want all the information from that. Mm -hmm. uh, they want all the spending information on the uh, F-35 fighter jets. They want all the information on the federal budget and where the cuts will be. But CBC gets a pass on blocking the release of information. Now, on Wednesday of last week, February 27th, the Supreme Court came down with a, a, a very important decision. Uh, and you've been very vocal about that decision. Uh, can you tell us about what the Supreme Court said and your opinion on this uh, Watcott decision? The Supreme Court uh, once again said, you have rights as long as we say you have them. And uh, they they shredded the charter, in my view. Now, people say, oh, you're going too far. They just upheld provisions of hate speech to make sure that you can't hate people. Well, first of all, hate is an emotion. Second of all, the Saskatchewan Human Rights Act goes too far in restricting speech. We all know that there are limits on free speech, such as libel, slander, uh, incitement to violence, and all you know most reasonable people say yeah yeah you, of course you can't say everyone should go kill bob and bob lives at well in other words you what you're saying is that. that truth is um a defense and harm can be if harm can be demonstrably shown then yeah you can limit somebody's speech but what the supreme court said in this decision is that even if you were saying things that are true it does not matter because uh some things that are true can expose groups through hatred and contempt. And, and so we've moved. We, this is the wholesale movement. It, this isn't the first decision to do it, but it's a wholesale movement from individual rights to collectivist rights, to group rights. Mm -hmm. And so the Supreme Court said, even if what you say is true, that doesn't mean you can't be uh, in violation of the law. And it does not matter what your intent is. You can still be in violation of the law. And then finally... It doesn't matter if you show harm. You can be in violation of the law. That is frightening. Exactly. That is yeah. very frightening. Those people will say, well, it just applies to the Human Rights Act, which is a tribunal. Anyone that thinks that this precedent will not be cited by other courts has no clue how the courts operate in Canada. This will be cited to uphold further restrictions. Um, and I've just I posted last night because I'm I'm still furious at this judgment and the fact that it's not the lead item everywhere, all the time. I've written a column about it. Uh, I wasn't on the TV show last week, so I, I've talked about it several times on TV since. Uh, but other than a few others, and I'll, I'll grant the Globe and Mail editorial last week uh, kudos for that. I'll grant Andrew Coyne kudos. There have been several people that have come out and said this is wrong. But so many others just want to keep talking about Justin Trudeau and his great hair or oh, yes. how mean Stephen Harper is. They don't want to talk about these other things. And so 
I, I wrote a post last night about uh, Stephen Harper's Supreme Court picks. Two of the five justices that agreed to this decision, there were six justices, uh, two of the six uh, were Harper appointees. Uh, since then, three justices have retired. He's added in three more. So he's got five of the nine that he's appointed. Mm-hmm. By the end of next year, he will have appointed seven judges. Would they do anything different? And my argument is no. And his legacy, if he doesn't make better picks the next time, is that the Supreme Court will be as liberal today as it was when he was elected. Now, there's one part of that decision, when I was reading through it, that really struck me. And it's it's the part where the Supreme Court says, um, exposes or tends to expose to hatred any person or class of persons. Class. The Supreme Court has defined this country as being one of class now. If you belong to a particular group, you have status that an individual who not belonging to that group does not have. That Amazing is very admission. frightening. And it's only, it's only specific groups. Yes. Uh, and, uh, of course, now there's an attempt to... Uh, the vote may come today. There's an attempt to uh, add gender identity and gender expression to undefined terms to the, the list of protected groups. There's an attempt to add, uh, there's some that say women should be added to the list of protected groups. I, I remember when Bob Ray started his hiring quotas in the 90s and, and a lot of this stuff started to become big. Uh, I was just leaving high school and, and looking at the work world and we were all joking saying, well, soon it'll only be white Christian males that are protected. Well, guess what? We're there. Yep. We're already We're at that stage. And, uh, you know, look, I, I don't want someone to get a job or to be treated differently by the courts because they are a white Christian male. I actually believe in this crazy idea that justice should be blind, that we are all equal before and under the law, and that uh, we should be treated the same regardless of race, class, religion, group identity. Unfortunately, in an attempt to, um, to deal with... Uh, some past wrongs, we've decided that equality now means we will treat you differently because of all of those things. Yes, disgusting. You know, you might not know this, Brian, but back in the mid-90s, this is Bob Metz here, um, I successfully defended before Human Rights Commission a local London landlord here in the city who found himself subject to all the same provisions that this court has just written in stone. There was nothing different in practice 20 years ago than what we've written into stone today. Here was a landlord in London being held responsible for a really silly comment that he did not even make, but he just replied yes to. He couldn't even speak English himself. And suddenly we're getting expert witnesses at the Human Rights Commission coming in from Vancouver and and British Columbia and all over the place uh, talking about how this had an impact on them, and he's never met these people. It, 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 it It was a circus. And, it is not. And at least the commission at the time recognized it. Unfortunately, the courts appealed it, and he lost his buildings and, and a complete livelihood. This has been a history of, of just disaster after disaster for a couple of decades, at least here in Ontario, because of human rights commissions. And, right, and it's across the country, and the answer is to, to peel back and, and get away from uh, ever bigger government. We need to, to get back to limited government, not, uh, not Leviathan. Oh, absolutely. Um, Gents, I'm going to have to cut you off yep. because uh, we know you- I'm, I've been hauled into a pre-tape now, and uh, uh, my guest is patiently waiting, but uh, sorry I have to cut you short a bit. Thank you for, uh, for attending, Brian. Uh, thank you very much.
Thanks. Bye. Okay, Bye. take care. And that was Brian Lilly, who's the author of CBC Exposed, uh, a new book, uh, basically exposing the the, the, the the corruption, both actual physical and, and political corruption at the CBC, and he's calling for its sale, and I'd have to mm -hmm. agree with him in that. I, yeah, you know, and didn't want to say it while he was here, but I don't think that uh, cover on his book would ever get on the L LTC bus system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't show this to Sandy White. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, uh, we're going to continue this discussion on the Watcott decision after the break. And uh, until then, we'll be back after this. Maggie. Yeah? Mac wants me to supervise your pre-interview with Brewer's office. I was told. All right. You're going to be talking to a spokesperson. I'll call him now. Uh, I thought maybe we could do a practice run first. Okay. I'd like to say, with all respect, that I don't feel I need to be supervised. Okay. You'll let me do it by myself? No, I just meant, okay, I heard you say that. I've been here a year. You've been here three days. Max working with a group of relatively inexperienced people she doesn't know. I know that. All right. So you let me do it myself? No. Then I'm doing this under protest. I'm sorry? I'm just, I'll be, I'm doing this under protest. What does that look like? It'll be the same. I'm just lodging an official protest. With who? My immediate superior, I guess. That's me. Well, are you writing it down? No. Are you really considering going to 10 o'clock? Don made some compelling arguments. Yeah, what were they? That growing something from scratch is something I should experience. Okay. <laughs> whoa, whoa, wait. What did that mean? Nothing. Really? Yeah. I know exactly what you're thinking. I can't say the same. You don't think I'm making a relationship choice? No. That this is just a temp gig for me until someone puts a ring on it and I can have kids? I wasn't say I, I didn't say any of you that. You don't think that I don't have the same commitment to news that you do? No. I'll be honest, because of the way I phrased those questions, I wasn't totally clear on what your answers meant. Today, the Supreme Court of Canada upheld a censorship law called the Saskatchewan Human Rights Code. They trimmed a few words from it, but they ruled in a 6-0 to zero unanimous decision that in Canada, the government can investigate you, charge you, prosecute you, convict you, and fine you for talking about your feelings in the wrong way. It's a terrible decision, and it was issued by the top court, so it can't be appealed. And even though it only dealt with Saskatchewan, it will be followed in every other Canadian jurisdiction that has a similar Orwellian Human Rights Commission with censorship laws, too. The case involved this man, Bill Whatcott, a self-styled Christian activist who, for more than a dozen years, has been going door-to-door -door delivering flyers against gay sex. Whatcott is motivated by his own personal story. In his own youth, he had a rough stretch when, he says, he himself engaged in youthful indiscretions involving drug use and gay sex. Now he's done a 180-degree turn, found Jesus, and has been on a one-man campaign against those same things he used to do. Obviously, there's a personal motivation here, and even though he's been called an anti-gay bigot, his own history actually makes the story a little bit less black and white, doesn't it? What caught is from Saskatchewan, where he's a nurse. This campaign of his is a part-time hobby. He's easily mocked because, frankly, He's so goofy in how he goes about it. He's pretty low-tech, going door-to-door -door with flyers, sometimes even on his bicycle. And the flyers he hands out, they don't exactly use the dark arts of fancy marketing or political campaigns, no madman here. 
they're literally scrawled in messy handwriting and typed. You can see them here. I'll tell you where I got a copy of these flyers in a moment. But then the busybodies at Saskatchewan's Human Rights Commission decided to make a federal case out of it, literally. They charged Whatcop with Section 14.1b of that province's Human Rights Code, which bans any public communication that, and I quote, tends to expose to hatred, ridicules, belittles, or otherwise affronts the dignity of any person. Did you know that it was against the law in Saskatchewan to hurt someone's dignity, to make them look ridiculous, to hurt their feelings? Well, they convicted him, of course, and fined him 17,500 bucks. He had to pay some of the people he gave his junk mail to, 2,500 bucks to one guy and 5,000 bucks to three others, seriously, for giving them a flyer they didn't like. He had to pay him 17 grand 500. Now, what caught appealed and then appealed again all the way to the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, the highest court in that province. And they acquitted him. Let me quote from the very wise Court of Appeal decision uh, in this uh, case written by Justice Jean Ann Smith, who wrote, and I quote, the impugned expression is essentially directed to disapprobation of same-sex sexual conduct in a context of comment on issues of public policy or sexual morality. Its limitation is not justifiable in a free and democratic Society. Now, there's a lot of $100 words in there, so what she's really saying is, look, what caught flyers against gay sex were comments about public policy and morality, and you're allowed to have opinions about those things in a democracy. So the case against what caught was thrown out. Except that the Human Rights Commission industry in this country, 14 different Human Rights Commissions, at least 200 full-time staff, dozens of lawyers, well, they couldn't allow this censorship law to go down. I mean, they might all have to get real jobs for a living if that happens. So the censors at the Human Rights Commission appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW Radio 94.9 FM, where you can call and join our conversation about free speech at 519-661-3600. You can also send us an email to get hold of us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And to continue our discussion of the Watcott decision and free speech, we are joined on the line by Oshawa lawyer, Freedom Party leader, Paul McKeever. Hello, Paul. Hi, Robert. How are you? I'm great, thank you. And sometime co-host of this show. And he has been a co-host and guest on this show several times. I called him a coast host last week. Did you notice that? Why <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a left coast host? <laughs> so, Paul, why don't you give us a rundown of your assessment of the Watcott decision that Ezra Levant just described? Yeah, sure. I mean, the tone of this is taking, taken off of, a, of another case uh, that was uh, decided upon a couple of decades ago, uh, Keegstra, in which a school teacher had mm-hmm. distributed literature that was uh, regarded as uh, hate speech. Yeah, now, in that case, of course, truth was a defense. Uh, but uh, at this uh, provincial level where we have these human rights codes, the Supreme Court of Canada now is saying truth is not a defense. In other words, if you're saying something that is likely to cause other people to uh, feel hatred towards some kind of group, uh, only certain groups defined by that uh, human rights code, well then uh, it doesn't matter whether what you say is true or false, it doesn't matter whether or not you intended to make people uh, hateful toward that group, uh, job done, you're, you're out of luck, you're, you violated the code. Now the, the real problem with all of this, of course, is that the, the court tried to pretend that it's okay to, uh, to censor this kind of speech because uh, when people are hated, when a particular group is hated, they tend to be ignored. Their opinions tend to be ignored and therefore they're, you know, democratically disenfranchised. Well, of course, the Charter says that your, your uh, right to freedom of speech is limited by 
uh, you know, reasonable things, reasonable limitations in a, a free and democratic society. So that's the linchpin. They're trying to say, well, because everybody wants to ignore a group that's hated, well, we have to limit freedom of speech. Well, this is, of course, nonsense. Because the, the court also said that uh, it was uh, striking down certain parts that might cause, uh, in my view, might cause people to ignore the same such group. So, for example, you're allowed to ridicule a group, according to the court. You're allowed to belittle them. You're allowed to even say something that might uh, be an affront to them. And, but think about this. If you, are, if you hold someone to be a, a laughingstock because someone's ridiculed them, I don't think you're going to be valuing their opinion. I think you are going to be ignoring what they have to say on political uh, matters. So every bit as much as a person who's hated, a person who is a, a laughing... I think we just we lost just Paul. Okay. <laughs> Let's try to get him back there. And while, uh, while he's coming back, I, I think... Um, there's one point about the decision that really struck me, and the question was asked of the court, is the infringement a reasonable limit prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society under Section 1 of the Constitution? And those words, demonstrably justified, I think that they gloss over them. I don't think they can demonstrate or justify that... Um, a group is particularly harmed or tend toward uh, somebody's going to hate them because of uh, a pamphlet that's been put in somebody's mailbox. What do you think, Bob? Well, uh, that's totally. I totally agree with that. And the other issue, of course, is uh, the particular person in, in in the case here, the Watcott decision. This guy wasn't even online. You know, here we no, have here we a, have this coast to coast disaster because of a handful of pamphlets he handed out. Yeah. Clearly, the court was using this as an opportunity to uh, to do something it had already had pre planned for quite a while. And uh, that concerns me greatly because, um, gee, if you're going to be doing things like that, we're in big trouble. And I think Paul is also um, right when he says that how can you differentiate about the democratic, so-called democratic rights of a person uh, because somebody may hate them versus ridiculing them? Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense to me. It seems to be rather contradictory that you can actually belittle somebody publicly and then say that they have not uh, the democratic right to participate in democracy, mm -hmm. while hating them does. That doesn't sound too good in there, Ed. It doesn't sound... Have we got Paul back yet? No? We're trying. Okay, why don't we go back... Why don't we go to our break, which actually speaks to the point that Paul was raising, which was the one about uh, um, people feeling ignored due to some kind of democratic right they have, right? Mm -hmm. Democratically ignored. Because what we have next, and it's, and it's a fairly lengthy clip, so sure, sure, we'll, hopefully we'll get everything back together by then. Um, you're going to hear a few crackles in this original clip because we got this off an old videotape, and this is actually from a, um, a broadcast of the Michael Corrin live show aired way back on March 30th, 2000 which is uh, still in the last millennia, for those in any doubt. And uh, believe it or not, on that panel with Michael Corrin were Paul McKeever, our guest, uh, Dave Murtry, criminal lawyer, former police officer, Marvin Kurtz, National Labour Council, Nybrith Canada, Bernie Farber, Executive Director of the Canadian Jewish Congress. But in this clip, we're only going to be hearing from Marvin Kurtz because he was one of the commentators on this very current um, decision that just came up. And on the other side of the uh, bumper, we'll be hearing again from Ezra Levant a little more on uh, some commentary on the Whatcott decision, and hopefully we'll have Paul back by then. Well, the, the logic is very clear. You attack a man because he's rich, because of your avarice, because you want to steal his money, you're attacking that person only. 
you attack somebody because they're Jewish, because they're black, because they're gay, you're not just attacking that person. You're attacking a whole community, and not just that community, the Jewish community, the black community, the gay community. You're attacking the entire community. If I'm afraid to walk down the street because I'm black, or Jewish, or gay, or Asian, then my democratic rights have been stolen from me. And if somebody robs me of that democratic right because of my fear, then he's attacked me, he's attacked the particular group I'm a member of, and he's really attacked all of our society because he's attacked our democracy. So, so what has to be looked at is that hate crimes are hatred of everybody's rights, everybody's democratic rights, and we all have those rights. Here's what Judge Marshall Rothstein, the judge who wrote the ruling on behalf of the unanimous six judges, had to say, and I quote, the prohibition of hate speech is not designed to censor ideas or to compel anyone to think correctly. Similarly, it is irrelevant whether the author of the expression intended to incite hatred or discriminatory treatment or other harmful conduct toward the protected group. The key is to determine the likely effect of the expression on its audience. But that's just not true, is it? I mean, Bill Whatcott is not being published, punished because he was a trespasser or violent. He is being punished precisely because of his views, which were politically normal just 20 years ago in Canada, and in fact are held by a large number of Canadians still and are contained within books with names like the Bible and the Koran and the Torah. Well, now they're just called hateful and illegal. Now, what Bill Whatcott has been puttering away for more than a dozen years here. The only victims have been recycling bins. He hasn't hurt anyone. In fact, he's been roughed up a bit. But Rothstein justifies taking away his free speech and yours by saying, look, if we don't watch it, this Whatcott guy, it could lead to another Holocaust. Do you think I'm exaggerating? Let me quote, hate speech always denies fundamental rights. As the majority becomes desensitized by the effects of hate speech, the concern is that some members of society will demonstrate their rejection of the vulnerable group through conduct. Hate speech lays the groundwork for later broad attacks on vulnerable groups. These attacks can range from discrimination to ostracism, segregation, deportation, violence, and in the most extreme cases, to genocide. Seriously? Seriously? Do you feel unsafe in Canada? Do you think we're all going to deport the gays now, to have mass lynchings now? Does Rothstein and his fellow millionaires on the court, who all live in Tony neighborhoods, gated communities probably, probably have private security, are they so out of touch with the rest of Canada that they think we're all just little barbarians who, because we get some flyer, are now going to go out and kill someone? <laughs> well, I'm going to be running right out there to do it right away. I, actually, <laughs> I feel a little unsafe in Canada with that decision. Yes. Free speech uh, is under attack here. And we are actually joined back on the line with Paul McKeever. We, we got him back. Hello, Paul. Uh, hi, Robert. Sorry. Yeah, it looks like the government found my phone line. And found me. <laughs> I wonder sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> In any event, I don't know where I was cut off, but I can tell you that, that the, the upshot is this. You know, if, if the court's basically telling you that you can make fun of people, you can belittle them, you can do these things, and the government can't stop you, uh, and yet they're saying, but you can't say things that'll get other people... 
uh, you know, upset with a group, the hateful of a group. And the way they try to justify this is, is to say that, well, because otherwise, that group, uh, you know, no one will want to listen to them. They have a right uh, to be, not to be ignored. And when you turn people against them via hate, they, people don't listen to them anymore, and therefore we, can, we are justified in limiting your free speech. That, to me, is completely ridiculous. I, I, I can't justify that uh, in any way, because I'm, I'm similarly not going to you know, value the opinion. I'm not going to listen to a person. I'm going to ignore a person who's been sufficiently ridiculed that I think they're a laughing stock. Now, uh, Paul, yeah. um, part of the uh, Section 1 of the Constitution of, of the Charter of Rights says that a limit has to be demonstrably justified. Now, right. how can this court demonstrate what they're alleging? They can't. They can't. So they're no. glossing over that particular part of Section 1, which says that any justification for a limit on uh, any of our rights has to be demonstrable. Well, you know, what they're basically saying is, you know, well, we've seen uh, what happened in Germany, and we've seen what happened in various other countries around the world when uh, groups like the Nazis and et cetera start spreading their... Uh, their hate propaganda, and uh, therefore we don't want to have that happen again. And in fact, that's precisely what the court's really uh, saying. You know, for all the talk in the in the speech uh, in their in their uh, decision about not allowing people to be democratically disenfranchised, the reality is they want specifically to disenfranchise certain views, whether they're true or false, whether they whether they uh, intentionally cause hate or not. It's the exact opposite of their stated uh, rationale. They're not. They're so. Um, uh, intent on making us believe that their concern is uh, not politically disenfranchising groups, uh, that they're not really realizing how ridiculous their, their rationale is with respect to ridicule and that kind of thing. And, and clearly what they're saying is we want to make sure that the, the government can not only prevent a group from being, um, uh, you know, make sure that a group is ignored. We want more than that. We want to make sure that a, a group can't be heard at all if they say certain things that we think, well, are just hurtful or may cause people in, in particular to uh, feel hatred towards someone. But listen, you know, I hate the Nazis. Why shouldn't I hate the Nazis? And there's lots of true things I could say about the Nazis that would turn everyone against the Nazis. I think that's a pro-democratic thing to do, because the Nazis were anti-democratic, and it, they were anti-freedom. What this decision says is, you're not allowed to badmouth a group uh, if it's if it's simply identified by the government as one that deserves protection. So if they wanted to, they could say, People having a certain political belief, uh, for example, a Nazi belief, are a designated group. And now I can't say anything, true or false, that turns people against Nazis. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And you want to bet that if the Nazis are a party that was similarly fascistic, were ever to get into power, the very first thing they would do is add to that criminal, or sorry, to that uh, human rights code, something that protected them, uh, but while they could at the exact same time uh, express ridicule and belittle and et cetera, all of their opponents, because, of course, the court has given them free reign to do so. You know, Paul, I, I wonder if there's even a, a larger agenda at work here, because when the government starts talking about things like, uh, you know, democratic disenfranchisement, or, or dis, is, that what, is that what you call it? Can't even say Disenfranchisement. Yeah, yeah, disenfranchisement. It's, it's an... It's an ridiculous term. We have no right to democracy in the sense we have a right to life, liberty, and property. Right. But well, when governments say that, when they say, we want to make sure you're heard, usually they say that in the context of, yeah, we want to make sure you're heard, but we're not going to listen to you, but at least we can say you're heard. And that's exactly what the, the type of... Uh, that scene that we heard just before the break where they had a new management coming in and she complains that, that yeah. he's supervising her and, and, and he says, well, I heard you. Oh, then I can do it on my own. Nope. 
<laughs> right? That's exactly right. And that's exactly how the government's positioning itself. So it can say, well, we heard you, but now we can say no after we heard you. And right. that's the only purpose I see of this whole exercise. Well, but it's, I think it's even worse than just being heard because they don't want you to even be ignored. So effectively they're saying, hey, we want people to pay attention to what you have to say. Well, because, I, because the more confusion you toss into the ring, the more you're, you're, you can rise above it all and, and quell the whole thing. Isn't that put the government in a comfortable position? Oh, it's well, like divide and conquer, isn't it? Right, and it puts any designated group. I mean, you can make a group up out of anything you like. They could be chosen factors or unchosen factors. Uh, you know, you could put genetics in there, there's an unchosen one, or you could put a chosen factor like religion, which, of course, they always do. In fact, it's one of the unch few unchosen factors they normally add. But if you think about it, religion and politics, what's really the difference in practical terms, especially when they're talking about things like what's the curriculum going to be in our public schools? Uh, are we going to pray in the legislature to whom? Uh, you know, these are not small questions. They, they talk about it really just colors the nature of all of government decision making. There's no reason why religion should be a protected ground in a human rights code. It's a, it's a choice, and religious beliefs should be subject to, uh, just like everything else, to open scrutiny, to uh, belittling if, if need be. If, if, certainly there are a lot of things in religion that are not only praiseworthy, but in other cases are completely and utterly uh, horrible. Uh, and we need to be able to say, I'm sorry, but if you believe in those things, and if you value those things that are horrible in your religion, well... You're worthy of scorn as well. You're worthy of, of uh, the hatred you, you get because you're, you're saying things that are hateful. I mean, if a, if a religion says, stone a woman because she's been raped, uh, she's been the victim of a rape, that's not something that, I mean, if you are saying that that's a good thing, I think you should be subjected to the full weight of public, uh, you know, condemnation. And yet this code uh, would say, no, uh, because people might hate someone who holds that religious view, you're not allowed to criticize that view in a way that would turn people against that view, and by, you know, by association with that view, anybody who values that view. There's that a... Um, I'm sorry, Paul, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, there's a clause, or a word that's used in the uh, United States Bill of Rights that is foreign to Canadians, I think, and at least to our Supreme Court, and that is the word inalienable. Yeah. Uh, or unalienable. It's been used uh, both ways um, when it comes to our rights. Now, the Section 1 of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you can properly call that the alienable clause. Because yeah. what it does is it allows our governments to take away our rights, whereas in the United States, they're sacrosanct. They cannot be taken away. They are inalienable. Well, they're taken away, but not according to the Constitution. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, but my point is, and I'd like your opinion on this, Paul, the value of Section 1 of our Constitution. Now, we've talked to Brian Lilly before about this, and he said it just basically should be scrapped. Section 1 has no purpose in a free country. What, what's your opinion about Section 1 of our Charter of Rights? Well, I agree with that in the, in the sense that you know, democracy is, is not something that ever is at odds with actual freedom or actual rights. It can only, you can only have a conflict uh, between democracy and something called a right or something called a freedom when either the freedom or the right are not actually rights or freedoms, or the thing you're calling democracy isn't actually democracy. I mean, democracy, you've talked about it on the show before, sure. I've advocated this view, that all it really means is that the authority of government is the authority of human beings rather than, for example, a, an all-powerful God, and for that reason, the, the power of government is circumscribed. And, uh, but in terms of rights, what people call rights, what we're really just talking about is 
what a person rightfully will do, what is consistent with human nature. It's not about what a court thinks or what a government thinks. And, and, the, and when the, um, uh, the American constitutional, the, the founding documents were, were drafted, they weren't drafted saying the government gives you these rights. They're saying the government's here to defend those rights that already exist because you're a human being. Exactly. And that's right. Now, what about groups? Uh, in our Constitution, again, in the, in the Charter, uh, Section 15, Subsection 2, it actually mentions that groups have rights. Um, it says, Subsection 1 does not preclude any law, program, or activity that has no, uh, that has its object the amelioration of conditions of disadvantaged individuals or groups. Right. Now, and the decision from the Supreme Court in the Watcock case mentioned class of persons. What kind of country are we living in when individuals are subservient, as far as rights go, to groups? You're living in a collectivist, racist society is what you're living in, mm-hmm. or in a sexist one, or in one that's uh, religionist, or what have you. And as soon as you impose, as soon as you take human beings and you say, oh, you're part of that group, the law says so, you're doing something that's destructive of freedom, destructive of, of human nature, destructive of, of humanity. And yet... The left, and I'll call them the left, but the right does it too in some ways. In fact, you know, here, I'll just mention, I find myself alone, shockingly alone, as a political party leader in this country, uh, condemning this decision. Where are all of these so-called uh, freedom fighters, the libertarians, for God's sake, uh, the, the, the conservatives, where, what hole are they hiding in? And I'm talking the progressive conservatives at the provincial level. They're all hiding from this, this uh, decision. I think it's absolutely abominable. And, you know, Brian Lilly, uh, God love him, I hope he, I hope he has uh, some influence on the government, but we certainly do need uh, a reconsideration of who it is gets appointed to that Supreme Court of Canada. Someone needs to be appointed, and more people need to be appointed, who actually care about the dignity of individual human beings as human beings, as opposed to cogs in a great big state machine. You, you know, it, it concerns me. Uh, you wouldn't believe some of the the debates raging in this city right now, Paul. I know you're not you're not, you're not living in London, but boy, do we have some wild ones going on in City Hall right now. We are such a sensitive society, and somewhere along the line, we confused words with actions, and people are forgetting that it's not the word that causes the the, the offense or the sensitivity, but a whole line of history of actions or inaction, if you would, um, that goes back that really is the whole cause of this. You think we're too too sensitive a society? Because we've got to wrap up now, by the way. Yeah, I, I think that uh, one of your other co-hosts, uh, Mary Lou yeah. uh, uh, Brojo, mm-hmm. has sort of uh, pigeonholed this correctly. We are feminizing the society. That doesn't mean we're making it womanly. It just means we're taking out the... Uh, uh, the, the personal responsibility and making it more of like a you know a village takes a, a village to raise an adult. Uh, that's ridiculous. We have to get back to personal responsibility because freedom depends on it. Well, now you got got me thinking of Pierre Trudeau again, <laughs> the only <laughs> masculine leader we've had in years. As you say, well, oh, we, yeah. we've got to go for another week. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Take care. And Thank for you, the Paul. rest of you, please join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do, and we'll see you right back here. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Back to you, Chuck <laughs> Now, for the latest on that big storm How are we looking, Montana? Well, uh, uh <clears throat> It's, um It's gonna be a big one And, um <laughs> When can we expect it to let up? Uh, that's hard to say, Kelly 
We're looking at a major depression here. Um, For even more up-to-the-date comprehensive storm coverage, log on to WURG.net. We want you all safe out there, Pittsburgh. Good night. Good night. Try to stay dry. Good night. And clear. Montana? What the hell was that? Her? What about you? What did I do? Oh, my God. Cutting me off and then saying good night twice? A little tapping routine. Good night. <laughs> Would it kill you to let me have the last word? Huh? No.